Hello and happy Wednesday. Welcome, welcome to the week preceding the least favorite holiday for dog owners. And I know I'm speaking on behalf of many of you when I anticipate uh, next Monday, because some of it's already started. Ugh, ugh, fireworks, yuck. Nobody, nobody likes it, and especially some of our dear sweet dogs. So hang in there, get some stuff from your vet if you need it, and uh, be careful that your dog doesn't get away from you uh, at this challenging moment. Um, and uh, I'll refrain from suggesting that uh, I won't be celebrating not just because of my dogs, but because of um, independence. Yeah, whatever. All right, <laughs> you guys, welcome to K9360. This is Jill, and uh, I'm here with you on Wednesdays. Um, Sometimes we're making good trouble about dogs and our relationships to them. Sometimes we're just bringing you some informative stuff about what's going on in vet med that we want to know about. Sometimes we talk a little bit about the politics of dog ownership. And sometimes we try to share um, or bring to your awareness resources for life with dogs and uh all the things we have to consider when we bring an apex predator into our homes. Thank goodness for domestication, right? Okay. Um, earlier this week, I was asked to come over and do a private um, session with a dog owner whose dog sitter is profoundly misunderstanding the dog's. And it's leading to some problems, uh, behavioral problems on the part of the dog, largely because this this dog sitter who, um, at the same time that she's claiming a great deal of expertise, also seems to have trouble, what would we call it, reading, reading the room, right? She doesn't see what the dogs are telling her because she's too distracted by the narrative in her own head. And the dogs are getting apprehensive and and worried about her because she's missing what they're saying in response to her behavior, and that's creating problems. Okay, so let's talk about dog behavior, canine body language, right? Because one of the biggest mistakes we can make as humans is to imagine that our dogs are seeing the world around them as we do in terms of what is safe or what is less safe for them to approach or what approaches them, what they might interact with, how they're gonna interact. And we humans have the benefit of many years of social conditioning, exposure to a range of people, animals, machines, other kinds of environmental stimuli and we have the power of rationalization, right? Language, um, which allows us to place threat levels of all these things into appropriate context, more or less appropriate context. Dogs not only lack these um, 
more involved or lengthy social advantages, right? They haven't been on an airplane. They haven't traveled to a different country, so to speak. But they don't see the world or think of the world in logical mental sequences like we do. They don't think in language. Some folks think that whatever a dog is looking at forms a picture, right? If you've read Temple Grandin's book about thinking in pictures, that the dog looks at forms. It's a picture that gets relayed to his brain. His brain will then decide from memory if he has seen the picture before and how he behaved or reacted when he last saw it, right? That's sort of a learning thing, like in the presence of this stimulus, I react in this way. And then whatever it was, he would repeat the same behavior or reaction again. So when it comes to strange or more novel events or experiences, some dog's default setting is perhaps to instantly distrust new things, uh, less familiar dogs or people, and react more negatively when they're faced with uh, a picture of them, if that's how we want to talk about it. Um, other dogs are more relaxed, uh, less reactive in the presence of the same picture. Uh, I'm not sure if I agree with all that, and I can tell you that I had a conversation with Temple Grandin once <laughs> at a lunch where I asked her, she's delightfully straightforward, but I asked her, how is it that you come to write about dogs in your book because you have no expertise? You've never trained a dog. You've never had to change a dog's behavior. You've, you've never... And she was um, charming, fun in response to that very direct question because her autism certainly gives her a very direct way of seeing the world. And she turned to me and she said, I have no earthly idea. I don't know anything about dogs. My publisher made me put that in there because he said that people who own dogs would read my books. But she said, I have no idea. I have no experience, and, I, and you're right, I have no expertise about dogs. Oh, how refreshing. It was a fun conversation, and I appreciated her candor and directness. But let's go back for a minute to this idea of dog th dogs thinking in pictures because I'm not sure I entirely agree with it. Although it's true for some dogs that the option for reactivity or even aggression will always be there. I think through training and the ability to read the room, our job is to make sure the dog never feels the need to exercise that option. Because remember, reactivity or aggression, lunging, barking, it's not a disease, it's a symptom. It's a tactic. The dog has learned to use it to acquire or defend resources. And we as humans need to stop putting our dogs in positions where they think they need to use that tactic. It's not a personality. Well, on very, very rare instances. But it's not a way of being, it's an action that a dog can choose or not choose to take and training is what helps us make those choices. Passively observing the dog does not. Passively observing the dog in the dog park most decidedly does not. 
it's a normal form of communication, using it usually about making something occur or to make something stop occurring. Some dogs decide it's their preferred form of communication. And again, through training, our job is to get them to choose a different tactic. A lot of the differences in dogs can have a genetic origin in terms of what uh, their more inherited personality urges them to do. But of course, environmental factors are also involved. Uh, The quality of a dog's early social experiences during that developmental window we call socialization. And many dogs build up negative associations with certain people, certain dogs, places, or events without the owner even realizing it because the process of acquiring and storing these associations can happen rather quickly. It's only later that the more negative acquired, negatively acquired learning experiences um, may get translated into reactive or fearful, aggressive behaviors with the dog. One of the social challenges with some dogs, and I think border collies might be a good example, is a default behavior when they're placed under a form of sudden mental pressure, such as somebody lunging at them, um, reaching out for them, startling them in some way, can be to lunge out or nip defensively at whatever they perceive to be threatening them. Um, This may be something of a survival response, right? Sort of a back off kind of thing. As dogs who work livestock, uh, it allows them to protect and defend their immediate space. And it's often a response that's so rapid that it lacks much conscious thought on the dog's part before it occurred. Um, I think of a friend years ago whose border collie would lay on a rug at the dog show. And she would lay on the rug, that was her space. And she would nip at people who stepped too close to the rug right? Some dogs have a bigger problem with wider social awareness in general. They aren't always good at reading reading social cues or signals, whether it's canine or human. Um, And so they may mistake benign social approaches for hostile ones. Um, This can build up to a lot of anxiety when dogs are repeatedly put in situations where they're not sure how to read the circumstances and they've not been trained to look to their owner for information about what to do. Um, And so we start to see defensive, agitated patterns of behavior, right? The dog seems always distressed. So I think the key to sorting out social behavior problems in all dogs is to train them because training progressively stretches their levels of social tolerance and ability in general and at a pace that the dog is able to cope with pretty easily. Because without such ongoing help, dogs can get locked into a smaller little mental world, even a smaller little physical world, um, and their levels of social tolerance or agility can get smaller too. So what does this all mean with respect to this idea of reading the room? So many people are unaware of how rich a dog's language is. If an estimated 80% of human communication is nonverbal, the dog's is even more so. And dogs are better at reading us than we are at reading them. So I introduce to your awareness 
the brilliant Brenda Aloff and her book, Canine Body Language. Um, I've met many longtime dog owners who are unaware of the information in this book. It is a, a huge and thoroughly well illustrated, right? A photographic guide to interpreting the native language of the domestic dog. So let me share with you just a small snippet from the introduction. Brenda Aloff, A-L-O-F-F, she writes, You have probably noticed that your dog doesn't speak in sentences. Or as I am fond of reminding my students, if you have to explain it in a sentence, your dog will never get it. Dogs rely heavily on communication through body language, almost none of it through verbalization. Because of species differences, verbal communication that human use, humans use are impossible for dogs, just as humans imitating dog verbalizations would be pretty dicey, maybe even ridiculous. Living with a dog means you must work at finding a common language between the two of you. This is frustrating in the extreme for both species. While humans are constantly trying to talk to dogs as if they were people, simultaneously dogs are trying to talk to humans as if they were dogs. This causes endless misunderstandings, which is unfortunate for both parties. Aloff continues, With her book, this book, I have given you hundreds of photographs of dogs living their daily lives, interacting with each other and with people. There are just as many photographs that are not included because one does run out of room. With each photograph, there's an interpretation of the dog's communication. The photographs are thought-provoking and fascinating to those of us who are avid students of canine lore. I hope they learn, they teach you how to learn to read canine. One more small section. See if I can sell you on the idea of picking this up. Communication for all of us arises out of how the species lives and what they do. Dogs are social animals who hunt together, raise young together to the dog. Another animal is either of the in-group, family member, or an outsider. Outsiders can be potential threats, um, competition for resources, or even prey. Understanding this is crucial to understanding who dogs see themselves as communicating with and what messages they are communicating. Outsiders can be accepted into the group and on occasion, Insiders can be cast out or dispersed from the group. Communication in the broadest sense is the exchange of ideas, thoughts, feelings, or intentions using speech, signals, or writing. For dogs, communication is primarily about intentions, especially intentions about what is safe versus dangerous or about predation. Come closer, let's do some mutual grooming or this bone is mine and if you come closer, you'll be very sorry or let's go look at that deer. Dogs communicate these messages largely through their body language. They don't write, of course, and their vocalizations are actually a very minor part of their language. If you want to know a dog's intentions, look at the signals he is giving with his body. And then Aleph's book goes on to show us in some pretty significant detail what those signals look like, what they look like when they're passed between or from dog to dog, and how to interpret them. The book is good for current dog owners, for new dog owners, and also for anyone who's fearful of dogs. 
I wish it were in every library and in bookstores all the time. I think the information really needs to be common knowledge so we don't default into a foolish attempt to psychoanalyze the dog. Rather, we see and interpret the dog's language in a clearer and more direct way, exactly as the dog has intended it. Let me elaborate. I'm going to slide this over. Um, I saw something on Facebook that I thought might be helpful. This is a recent post from a horse trainer. He's in his 70s. His name is Denny Emerson. And uh, there's not everything he says applies to our lives with dogs, but a lot of it does. So he says, it is almost impossible to learn dressage-based concepts without first knowing what the various terms mean. Words and phrases like engagement, on the aids, inside leg to outside rein, over the back and through. Emerson says, we don't teach kids to read before they learn the alphabet or to do math problems before they know their numbers. And yet all over the world, there are riders and drivers diligently taking dressage lessons who couldn't correctly define engagement, even if they would win a vacation to Cancun by doing so. There's a word for the so often missing link, education. So many riders don't read, they don't study, they hear these words and phrases even in lessons without taking the time or making the effort to actually figure out or find out what they mean. If we were told, if you bring me a total frat, I will give you a million dollars, the most logical first question would be, what is a total frat? Because how can we learn it before we know what it is? A friend of mine, a trainer who's been on this program several times, brilliant, insightful, she shared Emerson's post on social media and she said, this has been an issue with people calling themselves dog trainers since the advent of celebrity trainers on TV making stuff up as they go along. There is a language steeped in history, science, and experience and it really doesn't take that much to learn it yet daily folks demonstrate their eagerness to remain ignorant by not knowing the things that separate a true professional from everyone else she says simple things like knowing anatomy basic canine anatomy I struggle with that in my own classes um I think back to being a 4-H'er as a kid in South Dakota, we had to memorize the body parts of the horse so that our instructors, when they said, your horse's saddle is too far back on his withers, you knew exactly where the withers were. You knew the difference between uh, the relationship between a pastern and a coronary band, um, a knee and a hock, right? A stifle and a croup. You had to know the body parts of the horse. And I think that my friend is right when she says simple things like knowing anatomy, dentition. How many teeth should your dog have? 
How many teeth does your dog have? If there are some that are missing, which ones are missing and why? Was it genetic? Did something happen? Anatomy, dentition, common diseases, immunization schedules, common parasites, how to identify them and what to do about them, and general canine husbandry. And that doesn't even cover having so much as a basic knowledge of training methods, training tools, their development, or their correct application. She says, some folks think they invented stuff, so they get to write their own history, when in fact it just makes them look foolish and woefully uneducated. I can't make people want to learn, but it sure would be nice if they took the initiative to do so. In the comments, another person replied to her and said, I don't know why writing instructors assume that students know these things, but they do. Wouldn't it make sense to explain what a total fret is before asking the student to bring you one? My friend is so wise, she made a response to that comment. It's so wise and thoughtful. She said, part of the process of learning because what people lack is the initiative to ask what the total frat might be. It's not the instructor's job to make the student want to learn. The information is readily available in this historical moment. And that little device you're holding in your hand. Intellectual curiosity is what drives the desire for more information. She said, I actually looked for total frat on Google fully prepared to discover that Denny had made it up. He had. And she concludes, what separates me from everybody else was the curiosity to discover what it may be. So if in the future, my instructor asked me for one, I would know what, what it was. And I think that's something we all have to figure out. Right? How much can we expect from our instructors versus what we expect from ourselves? And even as I work with folks to train the dogs, um, at what point, I fully expect that at some point I get to hold my human students accountable for their own learning. Uh, I'm constantly encouraging them to discover for themselves or with some guidance when they're going to hold their dogs accountable for their learning as well. And that seems to be a huge, huge cognitive leap for a lot of people. So um, read the room, right? What is, the, what is the dog actually saying? Not what are we projecting on the dog? I know someone who is constantly drawing thought bubbles over the dog's head and then filling that in with language. Oh, she's saying, or oh, he's saying, or oh, he's thinking. Which would be fine if you could map the thought bubble over the dog's actual body language. Instead, we're not reading the room, right? We're 
thinking about thinking instead of really looking at what is the dog telling us with their body, with their, where their attention is, how they focus on something, um, the tension in their muscles, whether or not their eye is relaxed or their mouth is relaxed. What can you sense by a general uptake or as evidence of a general uptake in their energy level, right? A wagging tail, for example, doesn't always mean the same thing. There are different kinds of wags. They mean different things. We have to teach ourselves and we have to especially teach our kids, right? That there are wags that indicate apprehension, wags that indicate a level of interest that is potentially dangerous. Um, The height of the dog's tail as it wags is a huge indicator of the differentials or the differences in meaning, I guess, between those different kinds of wags. So we're going to continue this um, investigation of canine body language, what it means, what difference it makes to know what it means and why uh, next week, right? So if uh, this was interesting and you are thinking about uh, about learning a little bit more about canine body language and what dogs are saying and doing with and to each other um, as they communicate non-verbally, then join us again next week, next Wednesday, here on Canine360, right? We're at 6.30 on Wednesdays, or you can always grab the podcast uh, when it hops up on the KZUM website and give a listen You could even wait and listen to two in a row, right? Get the whole thing all rolled out for you. In the meantime, looks like it's just about enough time for us, time for me to be done. Uh, Slide on out of here. Stick around. The celebration is coming up and can celebrate all week if you want. Come on out to Stransky on Thursday hang out in the park, listen to some good music, see programmers and fellow listeners and a little bit of KZUM swag for you, uh, opportunities to donate, volunteer, learn more about the station, um, but mostly just to enjoy everything that we get to enjoy uh, in the summertime with each other and good music and good community radio Thanks so much, you guys. Stick around. Um, Not just tonight, but always, right? We love you here at KZUM, KZUM HD, the coolest radio station in the world. See you here next week. Thanks.